themes in all these stories that come from uh, foreign domination, post-exile times are how to be faithfully Jewish often involves I give my allegiance to God and nobody else. And so I'll keep praying to God even if there are consequences. That's Daniel gets thrown in the lion's end because he keeps on praying. Um, it's all sorts of... Even, even Joseph uh, in, in Egypt back in that through mm-hmm. Genesis is one of those... He continues to be faithful even when the odds are stacked against him. So here's another one of those stories of someone who it seems like it's his faith in God. I won't bow down to anybody else. I won't kneel. I won't, I won't give my allegiance to anybody else but to God. Um, and I won't give my, my loyalty uh, to, to anyone else. So, like, this was an issue with the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar who's making statues. They want people to bow down to the statue. And now it's Haman wants everybody to bow down to him, and they won't do it. Okay. So Haman gets upset. Well, except Haman has to be told that Mordecai yeah. doesn't bow down. <laughs> like, it's not like Haman is walking around and noticing, hey, that person over there isn't bowing to me. It's just, like... Later, somebody has to go, hey, did you see that Mordecai the Jew wasn't bowing to you? And we're told that Haman felt rage. And um, this is the Hebrew word for rage, which is really popular in the book of Esther. I think this is the third time this word is used. The previous two times was uh, Xerxes feeling rage against, like, Vashti. And, um, but... Haman's name sounds a lot like that Hebrew word for rage. And so I think that this is kind of a little nod to the to the Hebrew hearers that Haman is like associated with this 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 word that the Old Testament associates with fools who can expect a disaster. Like yeah. they get so enraged that it that they make foolish mistakes. Like yeah. Again, Xerxes getting mad at Vashti for doing things that was socially accepted for her of like, oh yeah, don't go to drunken orgies. And so that kind of like set some things into motion. And I think here again is another one of those spots where Haman is so enraged that he's not thinking clearly. Yeah. I think that's a really important idea that there's a connective thread. Even though King Xerxes isn't biologically related to Haman, they're both set up as, look at, look at what happens when these people get in power. They get so obsessed with their image and um, making everybody see how great they think they are that when something threatens that man, they're pretty insecure deep down. And they, they get unleashed. I mean, they just, just in unhinged ways, they start lashing out at anybody and everybody, even for people doing reasonable things, right? So here's Mordecai. Yeah, who, and, and Mordecai's response, like you said, it's not like he's rubbing it in Haman's face. No, I refuse. He's just, nope, not going to bow down. But when word gets to Haman, Haman is just, he's, he's, he's set off and decides he has to get revenge. But Haman thinks he won't, he, he's, he's above, you know, a fist fight with Mordecai. So he's got to find somebody to get rid of Mordecai and cover his tracks um, and maybe get rid of everybody. So he's had somebody tell him that Mordecai is one of them Jewish people. And so now Mordecai comes up with a plot that's going to do his dirty work for him. Maybe this is a, a place, too, that like it, it, it might seem like overkill, like, wow, you're mad at one guy, you're going to wipe out the whole group of people. But because Mordecai's reason for not bowing down seems to be I'm not going to bow down because of my faith in my God, because I believe in Yahweh. I won't bow down to anybody else. Haman maybe realizes, you know what, it's not just Mordecai. If any other Jewish person is, uh, is faithful to their, their uh, loyalty to their God, 
they'll you know they'll be thwarting my side. They won't do me proper allegiance. They won't you know recognize my greatness or cow tow to me. Um, and so he realized, you know, my whole problem is with all of them. And he convinces the king that the Jewish people's loyalty to God is dangerous to the empire. So he, Haman goes to the king, and he says, Hey king, did you know there's a certain people scattered and separated among all the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different, and they don't keep the king's laws. It's not appropriate for the king to even tolerate their existence. So then he gets the king to sign on to a law that's going to be, can we wipe them all out because they're dangerous. They threaten our way of life. And I think that this plays back into Xerxes' own like anxiety that we saw back with Vashti with yeah. his one friend saying, hey, if all the other women see that your wife doesn't have to obey, then all of the other wives are going to say that they don't have to obey their husbands. So therefore, if the, all of the other people see this other certain people not obeying, they're going to decide to not obey. Exactly. And so the, there's this recurring thread there too. That it, it's, it's not just about the, the way Vashti responds, but it turns out there's a deep insecurity about anything that seems like a threat to your greatness or your image or what other people think. And in, in a lot of ways, this, this feels to me like a recurring thread throughout Israel's story that so often there are these appeals when, when there's an empire with power um, that it's, we can't let those Hebrews, those Israelites, those Jewish people uh, worship their God because that threatens our control. It's, it's the same way that Pharaoh says uh, back in the days uh, before the Exodus, we got to get rid of these Israelites because they're just becoming too powerful and they don't worship our ways and they don't, you know, they don't you know, bow down to our gods or our pharaoh. And because of that, they're a threat. They're dangerous. Um, and how often that, that train of thought leads to they've been overpowered, they've been replaced, they're becoming too numerous, or they're, they're, their differentness is scary. And because they're, they're, their differentness is scary, we have to get rid of them. We can't learn to adjust and accommodate. We have to get rid of them because they're scary. And maybe, to be, to be honest, I don't know that I want to say to be fair, but to, to be honest, that impulse isn't just like an ancient times thing. We in the 21st century wrestle with that temptation, that challenge, all the time. And there's, uh-oh, here's my way I want the world to be. And then there's someone else who's different. It is so easy to, well, they're the problem. We have to get rid of them rather than, I don't have to be threatened by somebody else thinks differently, acts differently, uh, worships differently. Um, but man, is it easy to assume the problem is them. And if only we just got rid of them, they're the threat. I'm fine. Um, and, and man, we've been playing that same strategy for literally for, for millennia now, huh? So, okay, so once, once um, Haman has this plan, he, and he even um, gets money attached to this, that there, someone's going to be paid 10,000 talents of silver to those who have charge of the king's business so they can do this wicked plan. So, cool historical side note, mm -hmm. because uh, ancient cultures like to keep records, mm -hmm. which we now have access to. The amount listed here is about two-thirds of a year's revenue. For the whole empire. For the whole empire. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. remember, this empire is huge mm -hmm. at this point, right? So we're supposed to hear this number and think, that's a lot mm -hmm. of money. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money being invested into this, this plan, this scheme. Like, if you can imagine like the United States tax revenue that they collect every year to like run the entire country. 
think it's two thirds of that budget. So it's it's a yeah. lot of money. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And interesting too that later on, like flash forward five hundred years, when Jesus tells a story about like impossible amounts of debt that are forgiven, he reaches for the same number, ten thousand talents. And it seems like in that story too, the hugeness is part of what is the point of the story. And mm -hmm. In Jesus' parable, it's almost it's it's almost comical for the, the the effect of his story. Now, could you imagine a debt that big being forgiven? And here in this story, it's that the hugeness, exaggeratedness that is part of the almost cartoonishness of this moment. Just like Haman is sort of a cartoon villain, um, and Xerxes is sort of a, a cartoon, you know. Uh, uh, power-hungry king or, or emperor figure, that all of this feels kind of exaggerated. Um, and again, I think that suggests something about how this story got held on to, that this is one of those stories that wasn't just, hey, this event happened, but a way of remembering how do we live in times when we're in the minority and we're threatened by a powerful empire? How do, how do we stick to our convictions and not just go with the flow sometimes, but also not fall into the same um, trap of, of bitterness and of hate and, and vengeance that that gets, that gets him later on. And I think Xerxes is, and, and I think we're supposed to see Xerxes as being very foolish in this moment. Yeah. Because Xerxes just says at this point, you know, do as you like. And then he gives his signet ring, his royal seal, to Haman. And that, you know, that's the thing that he uses to, like, stamp all of his decrees, all of his edicts. Is, like, he's kind of just handed over all of his power and authority over to Haman and kind of allowing himself to become a puppet king, essentially. Like, he's just lost a lot of authority here in this moment. This chapter of the story um, got me thinking about a, a quote, um, and it's uh, actually from Octavia Butler, who we talked about like <laughs> a month or so ago. Um, so since our episode when we talked about her novel, Parable of the Sower, I read the second one, Parable of the Talents, and there's a quote from that book that I think is the first Octavia Butler quote I ever ran across. And man, this isn't the Xerxes quote, or a Haman quote, I don't know what it is. So here's, here's what Octavia Butler said in her 1997 novel, Parable of the Talents. Choose your leaders with wisdom and forethought. To be led by a coward is to be controlled by all that the coward fears. To be led by a fool is to be led by the opportunists who control the fool. To be led by a thief is to offer up your most precious treasures to be stolen. To be led by a liar is to ask to be told lies. To be led by a tyrant is to sell yourself and those you love into slavery. Man, like, uh, th th it, it, those, are, those are ominous words no matter what era you live in. But there's something really powerful about, like, yeah, that, that's part of the issue in this story. That Xerxes, his ego is part of his downfall and his foolishness. That he is so interested in maintaining everybody thinks he's great that it affects his marriage. He's willing to lose a wife over what people think about him. And now he's, because Haman appeals to that same ego, like, you don't want people, you know, resisting your rule, king, do you? So let's wipe out a whole group of people. He has just given permission for genocide. Um, and again, maybe in the ancient world that, was, that wasn't a bigger deal than it is, as it is now. But, like, still, to, 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 to so horrifically be callous about it. Yeah, we kill whoever you want because I'm more worried about my reputation. I don't want to lose face. And Haman knows how to play. He plays that same ego thing. He plays that you don't want uh, people to think less of you. And it's, 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 to me, that's Butler's line. If, if you allow yourself to be led by people who are so fragile in their ego, that's going to dominate how they govern. And that's exactly what plays out in this story. So, okay, uh, that part of the plot makes sense to me. But there's another wrinkle that happens in this chapter that I think is laying some groundwork for what's going to come later in the story, 
but it, it's a detail worth, worth naming. Um, Haman has come up with this plan, I'm going to get the king to sign on to, we can kill the Jews whenever we say. And then there's a, okay, how are we going to decide what's the day to kill all these Jewish people? And this is the part that feels kind of culturally different. Because, like, for me, if I were plotting the evil plan, I would get on my calendar and look for when I'm free and don't have a dentist appointment. Um, but Haman's approach is, we're going to basically roll dice and find out what the right day is. And again, part of this may be a culturally different kind of a thing. That we, this, this is a story set in a time when a lot of those big, important choices, there's a sense of, we'll let the fates help guide our decision, and they would cast lots, or roll the dice, or whatever. And a lot of things seem to be done back in, in ancient times with that kind of, whatever the, the fates, or the gods, or the spirit, you know, whatever your, your particular religious beliefs are, they will decide by, we'll cast the lot and do whatever the lot says. Um, so that's what they do. They, they cast lots to find which day should be the day mm -hmm. that we will uh, send the edict out to kill all the Jews. And I think a great visual for that, like, kind of casting lots and you're expecting that gods or spirits or whomever is influencing the die to land where they need to land. I, I always think of the movie Stardust, okay. uh, which is a, based off of the book by Neil Gaiman. And um, they're the, the wicked, evil witches who are hunting the star to, like, eat her to gain, <laughs> gain youth or something. Um, they're constantly throwing die into, or dice into the air and then catching it. And, like, that kind of tells them, oh, yes, we need to go north. Yeah. Or you're lying to me or whatever. And it's because, like, in that world, it's magic is influencing where the dice land or die depending on how many they're throwing and I think that especially in a world where there are multiple gods like you know you pray to the god of harvest you pray to the god of um you know fertility whatever whoever you're praying to you know in the Jewish case you would be praying to the Jewish god when you cast lots you're, you're kind of expecting that those gods will just be all like, okay, let's quickly move this so that it's yeah. landing. So, like, there's, like, kind of, like, the idea of there's outside influences mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. lot, on the dice, on whatever you're doing. And maybe, before, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I, I'm completely just, like, looking down on people who make decisions by dice casting. Because I get we can get sort of a smug, sort of a we know better than them kind of a what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. <laughs> um, and maybe if, if, there's a, if there's an opposite error to make, we sometimes live in an era where we, where we assume every possible factor is under my control and that there's never a situation where there's just factors that are beyond my ability to control. And we sometimes live with, well, if you just would have worked harder, planned better, done something, you could have made it all come out. Whereas there's something about that ancient mindset of, you can do everything right in your part and things still don't go right because the world is more complicated than just you and your power. Now, please don't hear me as me advocating we should start making all of our decisions by dice rolls and coin flips. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, it, and it's maybe even worth noticing too that when you get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, there's one moment where the disciples cast lots to figure out who's going to become the replacement mm -hmm. of Judas. And again, part of the, the wrinkle there is they come up, we got to cast lots because Jesus, yeah, Jesus needs around 12 for there to be a complete group of us. And they cast lots and pick Matthias when he's never heard from again. And God's really got St. Paul waiting in the wings eight chapters later. It's like, God knows. Yeah, we're going to get our place for Judas. It's just not the way you think. 
But, okay, so they cast lots, and even if it seems weird, that's what Haman does. He let, we're going to cast lots, and whatever day the, la- the lots tell us, that's going to be the day that we send out in the, in the memo, tell everybody all across the kingdom, that's the day we get to kill all the Jewish people, and plunder all their goods. It seems like that's where this 10,000 talents worth of silver is coming from. The idea is, we can kill them all, and then we get their stuff. And part of what he sold the king on is, let me do what I want, and this, my plan will pay for itself, and will make the king richer, because his plan is we're going to just get to plunder. And the, the text is, it is horrifically clear that this is going to be men and women and old and young and children and families, and just, we're just going to kill them all. It's everybody. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is absolutely lumping everybody in for what, what is basically one slight from one guy, Mordecai. And again, we might all say, this isn't really a crime he's committed. He's just refused to kneel down to uh, give his allegiance to Haman. But man, everybody gets upset because of this one act um, and the whole group of people. So this is very, very clearly like a moment where this is like absolutely race-based violence. The idea is, you know, this whole ethnic group now needs to suffer because they're all going to be dangerous. They're all troublemakers. Um, and so the, the, the casting of lots is related to how, when are we going to execute this plan. So they cast lots in the first month of the year. Okay, yep. The lots then tell them okay. that they're going to kill the Jews in the 12th month of the year. Aha! So there, there's this gap yeah. of time here. And, and something I find interesting, you know, Esther is that one book, and we mentioned this already, the one book in all of Scripture that never directly mentions God by name. Right. And yet, God's all over this book. Right, right, right. And I, I'm not saying that, you know, like, like you said, Stephen, like we're not just to cast lots to figure out what we're supposed to do during the day. I'm not saying that God you know, wants us to start rolling die to figure out if I'm going to wear the blue shirt or the, or the pink shirt today. Right. But I see this, though, as God's hand in this story. Because the lots could have said, well, you're going to kill them in two weeks. Right, right, right. Um, and there wouldn't have been a whole lot of time for planning on, on both Haman's part or on the part of the Jews, which, right, spoiler to, alert, to the <laughs> there, there are more chapters after this. Right. So, you know, something happens to keep Esther, you know, the Jews are still living today. Something happens to keep them alive. Right. Um, we won't go into how that happens just yet. That's in the coming chapters. But, you know, this gives um, Mordecai and Esther time to plan to save their people. And I think that's a really good point. Like, th- this idea of the casting lots both explains why Haman is okay with such a lag in time. Say, I came up with this dastardly plan, but now I have to wait most of the year to execute it. He casted lots. He's convinced that's the right way to make his decision. Mm-hmm. And it gets him, in a world where there aren't emails or Zoom meetings, plenty of time to get the memo all across the empire to all of the king's uh, soldiers and guard or whatever, on this day we're all killing all the Jewish people in our towns and precincts. Because again, they're not in one little right. space. Right. They're so not in the ghetto like in Nazi Germany. Right, they're scattered all throughout yeah. the empire and diaspora. But it also is going to mean, providentially we might say, this is what allows um, Mordecai and Esther to come up with a plan that will defeat Haman or spare the lives of all their people. Um, and again, that's, that's, we'll, we'll get to that part of the story. I think it's really important that the, the, that sort of invisible, unseen hand of providence there, and that it's not all labeled by everybody. Because I think that could be really, really a dangerous move. And it, and I, and, and it is, I, I absolutely am willing to, to say God is involved and directs events behind the scenes in ways that I don't get to see. 
it gets really dangerous, though, when I start deciding, this thing that happened, this must have been God, this thing that didn't happen must not have been God. Yeah. That gets awfully dangerous, awfully And I think that's one of the things I like is the restraint of the Book of Esther. That it leaves that, huh, how about that? The, 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 the lot landed in such a way that they've got a whole year, basically, to plan how they're going to foil Haman's plan. How convenient. <laughs> and, and with a wink-wink, you know, like, and, and not to spoil the next chapter, but there's going to be this sort of hanging question that Mordecai asks. It doesn't name God, but it's sort of like this, isn't it just convenient that things are arranged in just such a way that you can help? Well, isn't it also convenient that when Esther goes to the palace, before she's ever become, before she's chosen to be queen, mm -hmm. that Mordecai tells her not to tell Xerxes right, that, he's, that she's, she's Jewish. Jewish. Right, right, right. And again, like, it may well be that Mordecai's got reason. It might not be that he's got, like, a, a weird prophetic sense. It's just be, there could have been a lot of hatred. Oh, I'm sure there's lots of oh. reasons for that, but just that's yeah. another one of those yeah. God things. Yeah. I, I kind of question whether there is an underlining hatred of the Jews at this time. And that's because after the edict is sent out to all of the places, including the city of Susa, where the royal city is, it's, we are told that it was thrown into confusion by this edict. Mm -hmm. Like, that this seems like, you know, the people are reacting like, this is completely unexpected. This is like a lot of widespread violence. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what is happening? It's like, it, it, you can imagine, it would be like if all of a sudden... Somebody were to say, oh yes, um, in about 11 months, we're all going to just kill all of the Irish in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, it'd be like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do you mean we're going to kill all of the Irish people in the United right. States? Right, right. Like, where is this coming from? Like, it would be... Like, and there would be a lot of confusion because it would be like, okay, is this actually happening? Right. Are we, are we going to resist? Or is this going to turn into, like a war or is it going to like it would have a lot of lingering questions about the future of the country of the kingdom like this is a big deal I, I, and I think part of what would, what would determine people's reaction was if it came out of nowhere it would have that sort of jarring but if, if there were lots of other voices sort of making it easier day by day you know those Irish are troublemakers anyway you know they don't they don't um, they, they don't dress the way we do they wear green on their day why you know like, I mean, if you had an organized campaign setting apart they're they're not just different they're troublemakers they're they're subversive because they, they don't do things our way if that was sort of the, the agenda that came along with it I think it would be a lot easier to get people and again like flash forward to the 20th century, that's how the Holocaust happened. Yeah. It wasn't just on day one, hey, you got a crazy idea, let's kill six million Jews. But it was this, this long-played campaign of they're different, and because they're different, they threaten our way of life. So you're right, maybe in the story of Esther, there has not been all those millennia of programmatic, you know, uh, Jews equal bad. But I do think there's probably a background of Jews equal different because in so many ways they did try to preserve that distinctive identity that was connected to allegiance to Yahweh and that in the Babylonian era before this, there was, we're distinctive, we're not going to pray to the God. There probably was a sort of a, I don't know about those Jewish people, they're different and that could go either way. And yeah, it, it, it gets weaponized here in maybe a way that it hadn't been quite before. That's, I think that's an important point. Um, okay, so however, however it, it comes about that the, the, the dice land where they do, the plan is now set in motion. And basically the clock starts ticking at this point, that even though it was the beginning of whatever the calendar year was, 
Um, they've now got about to the end of that year when Haman's dastardly plan, and he's got the king's signet ring, so he can make whatever he says has the, the, the authority and the weight of a royal decree. And at the very, very beginning of this book, they made a whole big deal about, remember, we can't change our laws. Once we've made it a law, we can't change it. You know that, O king. And again, that, that to me is one more evidence of the arrogance of this empire. Like, that there's no possibility, maybe we got this wrong, we'll need to change this along the way. I think any time we make something, nope, this cannot change, there's a certain amount of uh, hubris in that. There's a certain amount of, you know, we need to be prepared. If you're based on a circumstance I haven't foreseen, and I may need to adapt to it. Um, and being able to recognize that, I think, is part of what humility in common life looks like, rather than, nope, this, can, this one can never change. Um, that it sort of played up in this story about, yep, this part of the, the, the way the empire sows seeds of its own destruction is that we made a, a rule, and the rule can't change, or we'll lose face, or we'll lose our reputation. So, so one last note that I have about the edict okay. is about the time that it would have been being delivered and proclaimed across the kingdom would have been around the time of Passover. Mm. So... Passover, as most of you probably know, is when the Jews are preparing to celebrate God's deliverance from slavery and death when God brought them out of Egypt, um, way back in Exodus. And so this, I think, is especially like a critical moment for them because they're celebrating God delivering them from slavery, from death. And here they're being told, we're going to kill you. And here's the date. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it seems like it's important that in, in a story like this that is late enough in Israel's history that they can look back to those earlier times of saving and say, God, you showed up for us in the past, and now we're in danger again. What, what are you going to do? And hanging in the background in my mind anytime I spend time in the book of Esther is the reality that people are spared in this story in the end. And in our era, in the 20th century, in the Holocaust, six million Jews and millions of others were killed by the Nazis. And we got whatever it means to believe in God also has to reckon with what kind of evil human beings allow to happen in God's world. And that belief in God doesn't necessarily equate to, and in the end, in the nick of time, everybody gets saved in the end. That, that's difficult to process in our faith. If in every story it was, in the nick of time, God saves the day, uh, then it does feel like a cartoon where, you know, somehow or other, Bullwinkle and, and uh, Rocky the Flying Squirrel foiled Boris and Natasha's wicked plan. But there are times when that doesn't happen. And our faith has to wrestle with that and find where is God in that, too. So as much as it's easy, it's easy to find God in the, oh, things worked out, this must have been God. The difficulty, once you open that can of worms, now you're left with the hanging question about, well, how come nobody helped me when I was the one who was dying of cancer? How come, how come no miracle happened when the, my loved one was in a car accident? And if we're going to say, hooray, something, something saved the day, that must have been God, we also have to, how do we talk about when, when the, the saving moment doesn't happen and Lazarus dies instead of gets better? I know that's a heavy note, but that's probably where we need to end for today, because uh, next week we're going to pick up with Esther chapter 4, which is probably, if you've ever heard a verse from Esther, it's from chapter 4 of <laughs> Esther, um, and it's a really important one for this plot and for our, our faith life, too. So join us for more conversation next time on Crazy Faith Talk. Talk to you later.